Gabby Everett, and I have the privilege and honor of reading scripture with you this morning. Um, This morning we're reading from the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 24 in the New Living Translation. So please read with me. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites in seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made whenever the Israelites places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. The east would attack. It's planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east. Camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. Cattle and donkey left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. Your God drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, but you must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the clan of Abizar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the Midianites our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Rescue Israel. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and read, How can I, Midianites? I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that I bring to you. He answered, Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat, and with a basket of flour, he baked some bread without yeast. Then, carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel and bread under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened men in this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then, flamed up, the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff of his hand, and a fire appeared from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. 
do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Ephrah in the land in the clan of Abizar to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Uh, before I start, I need to ask for grace in that um, in our household, we like to share a lot of things, and my son likes to share what he brings from home, and he brought a uh, cold at home this past week. I am not contagious or anything like that, but one of the last things that come back is your, um, your voice. So if my voice goes in the middle of the sermon, please bear with me. Uh, stop as well, and I thank you for grace as well. Uh, my wife wisely told me, if your voice goes, just be at home talking. That's God's command for you, not only... In the pulpit, speak well. Um, but if that happens, we'll just pray, right? And let God please and judges as a result of that. Uh, but we're glad you could join us this morning. We continue our sermon series in Judges titled Imperfect Savior. And we're in Judges chapter 6 and 7 today. 300 was a popular historical action film loosely based upon, upon the Battle of Thermopylae in the Greco Roman Persian Wars. Although some of you have may not seen the movie, I realize it's a lot older now than, it's like 2006 now, right? It seems a lot long time ago now. And some of you may have not seen the movie, but I'm sure you're familiar with this one scene. One arm. You don't have to watch the movie, but you probably remember this one scene where King says, do you want to surrender? And he says, surrender, and he kicks them into this pit, and it's awesome, I love this, it's Sparta, and all the guys are like, yeah, and all the, everyone's like, oh, this is awesome, I love this thing, and this, this scene just captures the heart of this entire movie, right, the many memes, the parodies came from this iconic scene, especially the one, you know, if you see SNL, there's a lot of those things, and the dramatic drama of this event uh, takes into the, the account of the strength, the power, the honor these 300 strong Spartans stood for and died for. There's a lot of historical differences that actually happened to the movie, but the heart of the matter is the glory of the lives. The glory of the lives of these 300 soldiers gave to the cause that is fondly remembered and celebrated in this movie. Well, there's another 300 soldiers that we meet in chapters 6 and 7 of Judges, that had this much dramatic effect, and dare I say, they had a lot more dramatic effect in the life um, of the biblical history and our history of the day. Because after the death of Deborah, Israel falls into a similar pattern that we have come to know in Judges. Judges chapter 1, 6, 1 says, Israelites, again, you don't expect anything better now at this point, did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord... Handed, over, handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The oppression of the Midianites was so severe, it says, the Israelites fleed to the mountains to hide themselves. In verse 2, it says the Midianites were so cruel, perhaps more cruel than any other groups that came before, so that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the cave, the strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the marauders from Midian, Amalek, and people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land, destroying the crops far away as Gaza. They left Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goat, cattle, and donkey. Everything was taken away. So they were reduced to starvation, verse 6 says, by Midianites. Then the Israelites 
finally called out, cried out to the Lord for help. So what, God, what does God do in response to Israelites crying out? Does God send another judge? Well, not yet, right? You know what God does? God sends a prophet first. Verse 7, when they cry out to the Lord because of the Midian, the Lord sends a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of Amorites in the land that you now live, but you have not listened to me. Okay, you may think, wait, God, I'm hurting here, right? Here, I don't have anything to eat. I don't need another lecture, right? Why another sermon here? Well, I need someone to come and rescue me. But God sent the prophet first. Church, the reason why he does that is God is telling them the need for Israelites goes deeper than just circumstantial deliverance. What God reminds Israelites is in order for you to escape this vicious cycle is remember back to who God is, God who does all these miraculous things to bring you out of land of Egypt. This is the God you must remember and worship. So repent and turn away from your wickedness and do not continue to play with fire and hope that you will not burn. Get away from fire and God's grace often begins with God's word of reminder Reminder of who God is, saying, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the promise-keeping God. And as God gives this word through a prophet, get to the heart of the matter, God does not wait until they figure it out. God prepares a judge, a deliverer in the process. And you and I know this very well as well, don't we? Paul reminds us of, of that in Romans chapter 5, 8, when, God, when Paul reminds us this is how God loves us. Romans 5a says, But God shows a great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when, while we were still sinners. There's none of us here that could dare say, Well, I was in graces with God, and God sent grace of God to make me realize He saved me. No one could testify to that, right? All of our testimony is, I was a sinner. I was far away from the Lord, but grace of God brings back me to who God is. So here comes a great warrior judge like any other time, right? That's what you anticipate, don't you? If the Spartans can produce King Leonidas with his brave army, surely God of the universe can now raise up a mighty army warrior with not only six-pack, but perhaps eight-pack or even ten-pack. And who would cry out and say, this is Israel and deliver the Israelites out of the depths. That's what you expect, right? And then we are introduced to Gideon. And let's just say he is a bit underwhelming, right? There's no mention of six packs. There's no bulging arms that rip through a shirt. I'm convinced that those guys didn't wear shirts because nothing fit, right? But Gideon probably had to wear lots of layers because he was cold. Not to mention there's no any story of bravery here. Rather, concerns, questions, and full of weaknesses. Someone that you probably would say, He's not the guy, right? Let's go find someone else, at least someone with some kind of a discernible skill. But church, this is why I have hope this morning. Because, you know, when I look at the story of Gideon, I am more like Gideon, not only physically, but more like Gideon, the leader of 300 Israelites, than King Leonidas, the great leader of Spartans. Not only I don't have the arms, 
the body. I know it's hard for you to recognize that. Um, but also, I don't have that character. I don't have his bravery. I don't have his passion, desire. Not only does Gideon represent all the weaknesses that we could think of for the Israelites at the time, he is a picture of me. Perhaps you too. He represents us more than not. Have you ever wondered, how can I ever do what God is calling me to do today? Have you ever wondered, God, I don't have any seemingly identifiable skills, let alone heart, courage, to do these things that you're calling me to do? Or have you ever wondered, is God really with me in this endeavor? Is God really present here? Or why would I go through this? Have you ever asked God, show yourself to me? I used to do this all the time too, like you are, right? God, tell me what to do. Open up the Bible and say, okay, what is God telling me to do today? Say, woo to you, brood of vipers. Oh, okay, that's not me. All right, God, is she the one? I open up the Bible and says, God, go to the desert. I'm like, no, that's not what God is telling me. But then we do that all the time, asking God, show me signs, help me. I think we're more like Gideon than King Leonidas is. We're charging into the battle. I find myself to be more of Gideon. And that's why I have hope this morning. This is a story, church, of God's presence that overcomes our weaknesses. This is a story of God's power, his perseverance, his patience, despite our faithlessness and our weaknesses. And that's what we see in the stories of Gideon and 300. Two points as always. First is the fear you find in weakness. The fear you find in weakness. Sojourner Truth was a famous abolitionist and a speaker. She is known for her role in women's rights in her speech, Ain't I a Woman? Inspired many of the needs of the women's rights. However, her journey, like many in her time, began with the cruel realities of slavery. Born into slavery around the year 1798, she began to work for her cruel enslaver along with her mother at age five. At age five, the kids we send off to nursery and constantly lived under threat and trauma and fear. Born and named Isabella, she was one of 10 or 12 children. Many of her siblings were sold off to slavery and separated from her parents at nine, she was under the cruel hands of the slave owners time and time and time again, living in fear in her weakness at the hands of the oppressors. We know her now as Sojourner Truth, but she began her life as Isabella under the weight of slavery, weight of fear, weight of her weakness due to the circumstances that she was in. Gideon also epitomizes this fear and oppression, the weakness, when we first meet him in this story. Living under the constant threat to his life was nothing new to Gideon. So it is no wonder when we meet him, he is in hiding. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord, a lot of people say this is Christ's figure showing up in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Angel of the Lord came and sat beneath a great tree at Ophrah, and which belonged to the Joash, the clan of Eviezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threading wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. Gideon was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress. Uh, wine well, in order for you to thresh the wheat properly, you have to be out in the open. Well, you toss the wheat up in the air, all the chaff 
flies away, and you get the weightier wheat to fall ground, onto the ground, and that's what you do. But where do we find Gideon? At the bottom of the wind press, where there's no wind. Imagine that, trying to get the, 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 the chaff to fly away, and there's no wind. It goes up, comes down, you have to do all the work, basically, by yourself. But why is he there? Because he's afraid. Afraid of the Midianites who have taken things away, who will take the things away from him. You see, the Gideon that we find in these chapters are not mighty warrior who marches into battle. Rather, this is someone who is fearful, who is full of fear in his weakness. This is further exemplified when God tells him to go in his mighty, to go into the battle. And this is what Gideon says. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest. In the whole tribe of Manasseh, I'm the least in my entire family. This is not highlighting his humility. He's highlighting his weakness. Even more, later on, Gideon says, Well, well, God, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. And then he brings an offering, and God consumes that, right? In the later verses, even more than that, he needs more sign. He wants more. So when Gideon is told to go take down the idols of his own home, of his own father, you know what he does? In verse 27, we didn't read this, but it says, So Gideon took tens of his servants and did as the Lord has commanded to go take down the idols from his home. But guess when he did it? It says, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and people of the town. And later on, when he's going on to fight, he again asked God for two signs, two times again, the famous fleece test, right? That you read about in verse 33 and 40. For sake of time, we won't read that. But the first time, he asked God, God, if you're truly with me, then let this fleece get wet, but the ground around it not get wet. God's like, okay, I'll show you. And that happens. And next day, he's like, wait, 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 God. Okay, perhaps the fleece is like water absorbent, right? So this time, what I'm going to ask is the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And God's like, all right, I'll do that. And guess what happens? The fleece is dry and the ground is wet. So here is Gideon, the hero of the story, the main protagonist, full of fear and weaknesses, asking for God to show him that it is who God is with him to reassure him that God will go with them. God will walk into this promise with them. God will deliver him. He's asking for God to show himself again and again and again, fear and weakness. And before we point fingers at him, I think if we're really honest, you and I are more like Gideon than we like, right? Man, the Midianites were scary opponents. Thus far in Judges, we see oppression, but Midianites take it to the next level, right? They take everything from you to the point where they had to flee to the mountainside just to survive, just to survive. Not only so, to go up against your own father, to the whole townspeople that wants to kill you because you just destroyed their idols, to go up against that, let alone go to war as someone that knows the oppression, how powerful the Midianites were, I think I would also tremble in fear. I would probably say, no, thank you, God. You got somebody else to go to. Why me? And what does God say to this? What does God say to Gideon here? And what does God say to us who often tremble in fear? We often expect God to say, how dare you, Gideon? I am calling you. How dare you, so-and-so? I have called you into this. That's why we often expect God to act like, to respond like, almost saying, like, are you serious? How many signs do I have to show you? 
How many times do I have to rescue you? How many times do I have to show you and provide for you? That's what we expect God to do. But look at the response that God gives to Gideon every single time. Verse 12, this is what God tells Gideon. Angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty warrior, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. This is even before he did anything, right? Verse 14, then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from Midianites. I am sending you. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, I will be with you. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Verse 23, it is all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. Do you hear the words of our Heavenly Father to Gideon? You are a mighty warrior. You will not die. I will be with you. Go with the strength that you got. Let me show you. You could do it. Let me walk with you. Let me empower you. I love you. And this is God who walks with Gideon despite all the questions and doubts and fear that he may have. Our Heavenly Father walks with Gideon to a point where Gideon is able to declare in verse 24, and Gideon built an altar to the Lord and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. I am at peace with God. He's able to come to the conclusion by God's gracious response every single time he had questions and doubts about what he's called to do. Church, do you really believe that? That our God is patient Father who walks with us, who sees us trembling in our weaknesses, and comes to embrace us. He's not this hyper-vigilant with impossible standards testing God. Rather, he's loving and gentle God who is patient to embrace us in our weaknesses. And we do this in our parenting, don't we? We love our children when they're learning to swim. We don't say, jump and survive on your own. Often as they're shaking in their legs, wondering, Daddy, are you going to hold on to me? Daddy, will you not let me drown? Daddy, can I jump in? Can I trust you? Often we say, I will. I will be there. I will embrace you. You're going to be swimming in no time. Come, jump in. This is the posture of a human father. How much more our Heavenly Father who loves us display that kind of heart for us. How often we say God is loving God, slow and abounding in love, slow to anger and abounding love. But we often picture him as impatient, judgmental, angry, God. And we often live in the fear of disappointing him because you have not measured up. You live in fear of thinking he's ready to punish you rather than love you. But what we see in the Bible today is our God is not like that. Our God is loving God. And if this narrative does not prove that to you, you know what it does? The greatest answer to this question is Christ himself. Yes, you and I have sinned and offended our God infinitely. Yes, we have worshipped our idols more so than the Israelites could ever imagine. We prostitute ourselves away from the Lord. But just as God prepares Gideon even before the Israelites learn to repent here, God displays his grace for us in this by sending his son to die for us on the cross to show us this is my way. This is the gospel way, God's love way, so you and I can respond to God's grace in love for him. Oh, church, 
God draws us out of fear in our weaknesses with boldness of his love for us. So our response must be that we could run back to him, not run away from him, but run towards the grace and the love of our Heavenly Father. And that's why, in response to that, Church of Christ should be the most loving place, most accepting place of them all. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we must be most accepting, affirming place for everything. God has to be God ultimately, and He sets the standard. But as God's love draws us out of fear, out of sin, this is where the gospel begins. He embraces us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and empowers us to go forth in obedience to His word and His command. Amen? Church, and that's what we see in Gideon's journey. From the fear in weakness now turns into faith in weakness. Now Gideon, from fear in weakness, turns to faith in weakness as well. Sojourner Truth eventually gets freed with the help of a nearby Dutch abolitionist. But her son Peter was sold back into slavery by being kidnapped by her previous enslaver and kidnapped into Alabama and be sold back into slavery. In her journey to free her son, Isabella experiences a spiritual reawakening. God calls her to be the voice, not only to rescue her son, but to champion abolitionist movement and renames herself Sojourner Truth. God, in her perceived weakness in the eyes of the world at the time, black woman, but God met with her and used her mightily to speak the truth to many people, This doesn't mean that she didn't face opposition. Sojourner encountered many opposition from pro-slavery groups. Whenever she traveled, she was often attacked. And on one occasion, she was so severely beaten, she was left with a limp for the rest of her life. However, Sojourner Truth, in her faith, in her boldness, in speaking out against injustice, never stopped traveling, teaching Surely that God would protect her. Faith overflowed out of her weakness. She was used boldly as a voice for enslaved and the freed black men and women for their rights after the Civil War. You know, Gideon's story is also a story of fear to faith and how God brings that out. In Judges chapter six now, uh, 7 now, God calls Gideon to go to fight against the Midianites. Well, not by his might, but by God's might. And how does he do that? He does that by doing something that's counterintuitive, right? If you're fighting against this large foe, what do you do? And we saw judges do this. They're like, come on, guys, let's go fight together. Let's all go together because there are many. But yeah, if we all get there, maybe we could get some numbers right here. And let's go fight. God will help us. But guess what God does in chapter 7? God actually tells Gideon, you got too many people, right? And you're like, What? God, they're oppressive people, right? But this is what God tells Gideon in chapter 7, verse 1 through 8. So Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, that's the nickname that he got, a defender, or he's a fighter against Baal now. His army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod, and their army is getting ready. The armies of the Midians were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of the Moriah. And the Lord said to Gideon, and he's thinking, like, okay, how are we going to do this? Right? Tell me what to do. And this is what God tells Gideon. 
You have too many warriors with you. I'll be like, what? God, really? If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home. Imagine that, your army leader, and you're like, okay, if you're afraid, go home, right? And then like 22,000 of them, two-thirds leave, and you're left with 10,000 who are willing to fight. And you're thinking, all right, that's good. At least they want to fight, right? You don't want this other dead weight, right? So now we got 10,000 people. They really want to fight. But verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many. Like, God, like, do you count? Yeah. All right, bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. So when Gideon took his warrior down the water, the Lord told them, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongue like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouth to the stream. And there's no, like, theological significance, right? That doesn't mean that don't ever stoop down and drink water or your son or your daughter is doomed if they do that. Nothing like that, okay? There's no allegorical thing about that. That's just the way that God divided this group. So in verse 6, it says, only 300 of them drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouth in the stream. All right, so if you watch the movie 300, the 300 Spartan soldiers get selected because they're willing to die. They're warriors. Here, 300 soldiers are selected because they just drink water. Right, that's the difference here, right? So you want to go to war with guys who drink water like this, and God's like, that's it. That's my army. And God tells Gideon, with this 300 men, I'll rescue you. And Gideon must be thinking like, oh, okay. Sure, God. All right, I guess you did it all. And God pairs the army down little by little by little. And as if to make sure if Gideon has no doubts, right? God, like, preemptively tells Gideon, like, hey, I know who you are, right? Let me tell you, go down. <laughs> Before you even ask for it, take some people and go down and hear what's happening down there. So Gideon takes people, come go down, and that night the Lord said, get up, go down to the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. But... If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Perah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged that you will be eager to attack. So Gideon's like, yeah, sure, thank you, God. You know me. You know my heart. You know everything about me. So Gideon took Perah and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarms of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Can you imagine? You're, you're Gideon. You got 300 up on the mountainside. You see... Like, vast army. Like, all right, what do you want me to see, God? Gideon crept up just as a man was uh, telling his companions about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into median camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, knocked it flat. His companions answered. This is even before they did anything. Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite victory over Midian and all its allies. Again, consistent with what we have seen throughout the story of Judges, it is not the might of the army. It is not the power of the enemy that determines who wins. It is God who determines the fight. And verse 19 to 22 shows us that it was just after midnight, after changing of the guard, when Gideon and 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly, they blew rams home, broke their clay jars. That's how they fought, right? Not like charge! They're like, okay, let's break some, you know, clay jars. Let's just shout. Doesn't that remind you of something? This is how Israelites fight. They shout all the time, right? They shouted, the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. And each man did not charge towards them. Each man stood in his position around the camp. Right? It's just comical, guys. Just imagine that. 
you know, this great battle is happening, and they're like, charge! You just stand there, and you just shout the whole time, and you watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape when the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far as Beth, Sita, near Zerarah, and to the border of Ebel, Meholah, near Tabith. Right? Imagine that. Imagine that. You just stand there. You shout. Enemies fight one another, and they run away. And your job is just chase after them. The greatest job on earth next to backup quarterback, right? Just watch and learn, collect your bounty, and go home was the job of these 300 brave soldiers who drank water with their hands. So what do the Israelites and Gideon learn from this story? It is not the numbers. It is not even the inspiration or their courage. It is rather God whom Gideon asked in chapter 6, whom he asked, why have you forsaken us? It is this God whom Israelites have forsaken to go after Baal and Ashtaroth who comes to their rescue. It is this God who leads Gideon and 300 to deliver Israelites to rescue them. Throughout the battle, upon seeing God's presence in all the actions, the questions and doubt, struggles with family on his own conviction, as he faced the Midianites that are far too many to count, Mr. Gideon and his imperfect savior of Israelites rise to his faith, leading his Israelites to battle with mere 300 men. And what is Gideon's job? Not to slay thousands upon thousands, not to overcome this great battle and to lead them to write the military history all over again, what he's simply called to do is stand and shout and tell people to shout properly. What he's called to do, church, is to be someone that points the Israelites, the true God of the universe, pointing them towards the greater hero, God himself, who will fight for us, not to his own ability. That is faith. Faith isn't that you have enough courage, you have enough abilities, you have enough of something to do mighty things for God. Rather, faith is absolute trust in God and God alone in His ability, in His might, His mercy, His compassion, His grace, and His sovereign love to get you through to whatever He's calling you to get through. That's what we are called to live. And often, quite often, our faith is most drowned out out of us, most displayed in our weakness, in our brokenness. You know why? Because there are no other choices you got. Oftentimes, when we are in those moments, we finally learn to take eyes off ourselves. After all, no matter how much ability, gift, strength that we have, we can't really do it, right? As Paul reminds us, all that we once held valuable once we held dear education, the materials, even our children, it's absolute rubbish compared to surpassing greatness of knowing who God is, who Christ is, the creator, maker, sustainer, encourager, the one who has the whole world in his hands, one who has put you in his hands, knowing him, the scripture reminds us, is far more greater than relying on your own ability and might to get through this journey of life. And ultimately, Gideon in his 
fear and in his faith points us to one who is perfect. Christ himself, who was forsaken by God on the cross for our sins, but rose again from the dead so you and I could rest upon him, so you and I can declare that he is the Lord. And again, God sometimes do lead us into darkness, and I know many of you are in it. In the places, perhaps you have the similar question that Gideon is having. Why have you forsaken us, God? Why am I going through this on my own? Here, where have you been? Where are you? I am unable to come out of this darkness by myself. And this story, as well as the gospel, reminds us that he has never forsaken you. He is there present in your brokenness in your weakness, when the enemy is too large, circumstances are too much to overcome. Perhaps God will not today deliver you out of the circumstances, but the reminder is that he has you. You can be sure of that, that he loves you. This mighty God calls you a mighty warrior. This mighty God calls you, and he will carry it on to completion this mighty God will bring you towards place of worship by the cross of Christ and is calling us to go forth and declare the truth of God. So with Gideon, for the rest of the Israelites, we could tell this story for the generations to come. In verse 2 of chapter 7, you have too many warriors with you, too many abilities, too many self-sufficiencies. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, Israelites will boast of me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. But we know by faith alone, Christ saves only by the grace of God so that Paul and the rest of the saints could declare, it is Christ I boast about, nothing of my own. That's the gospel story. You know, in the movie 300, and in the history of this great battle that happens, you know what happens to King Leonidas? This guy that had seemingly impenetrable muscles, and the body they could die for, and the courage and boldness and the strategy that people write about, dream about, want to be. You know, at the end, not to give you any spoilers, right? You know what happens at the end? He dies. Dramatically as that, right? But he dies. And you know what happens at the end? There's legacy, right? People are like, yeah, he died, so let's go fight. And there's inspiration, and that's actually the end story. Be inspired. Be encouraged. Go forth on your own because of that. And that's the reality of any human struggle inspiration story, not only in the movies, but in all other things, in all our religions, the countless religions, idolatry says that's what it is. Best leaders, even in their death, only can inspire others to do better. They could only teach you to face your fear, to overcome your weakness, to inspire, to be motivated, to do better. That's the story of the world. But you know what the gospel tells us? Gospel reminds us that Jesus also dies. But he just doesn't simply die. He dies for your sin and my sin. The undefeated enemy, the unconquerable enemy of sin can be paid for. But again, the difference is he rises. Unlike King Leonidas, 
or unlike any other religion, any other ideology of the world, our God rises again. Not only he declares, I have defeated sin once and for all, I have defeated death once and for all. And he says, not only will I inspire you, but I'll draw out this faith out of you, I'll empower you, I'll be with you, so you can do it, not by your own mind, but by the grace of God. So all he asks for is not more courage, more stuff to do, but what he calls you is faith. Trusting in who God is. To rest upon his grace. And church, that's what you're called to do. I hope you come to church with that hope. To hear this gospel to free you. To receive the gospel and to have that hope. And this is who you are, Christ Central Church. I hope you just don't come for inspirational speech because I'm not that great of a speaker. Right? I hope you don't come because you want a legacy that will inspire you to do better because our church and myself will tell you you'll be disappointed in a heartbeat. And our church is not that great of a church for you to say, wow, this church will rescue me, my city, my neighborhood, and the world. No, we cannot. But we'll try. We'll do our best to be faithful. But ultimately, you know who will do it? By broken people like us, by the grace of God. And today, we point ourselves towards our Heavenly Father, the perfect Savior, who uses imperfect people like us for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? Many Gideons that are sitting here, pray to the Lord. Many Israelites that are in, not only in the battle circles right now, wondering how can I fight, or those who are back home, wondering how can I help. Many those who want to fall, walk away from the Lord. Um, God's grace, God's reminder is that he is present. He will not let you go. He's not done with you yet. So can we pray that? Pray your faith of surrender, asking God for his grace. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer, Lord, as we come in this presence on this Mother's Day, as we think about what it means to celebrate a woman. Um, Lord, we acknowledge that we have fallen short oftentimes of the grace and the mercy of God. We come, acknowledge that, Lord, we're more like Gideons than not. We need your grace to come to save. Remind us of your grace for a risen Savior who have taken our fear of sin and death away so we can declare with confidence you are our God. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.